0: All right, you can find our sermon passage on page 916, if you have one of those pew Bibles there in front of you, 916, Galatians chapter 5, each week we've been reading uh, what we've done already and then kind of adding to it the new verses, so today our focus is on verses 19 to 21 at the end, but I'm going to start at verse 13 with the reading, so please hear now the word of the Lord. For you were called to freedom, brothers... For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other, so that uh, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God endures forever. Amen. In the 1640s or 1650s rather, either way, a long time ago, there was a teacher at Oxford University in England who was burdened for his students. Now you have to remember that back then uh, college students were typically ages 15 to 21 So it was not like today where it's 21 or 18 to 24, right? Or even sometimes even older than that, depending on how long it takes you. Amen. Uh, Back then, usually they started college at about 15. So they were teens. They were uh, high schoolers, basically, at Oxford University. And he was burdened for his students because he watched them year in and year out face the same temptations and not perform very well against them. In fact, he saw two problems in particular. On the one hand, there were many students who didn't even know what temptation was. Uh, it would come to them, and they didn't even know how to recognize it for what it was, and so they just got completely swallowed by it. But Then there were others who knew what it was, and they had been taught well, and, and they were determined not to fall to it, and yet they fought it with all the wrong weapons. <laughs> they, they went about it the whole wrong way. And as a result, they fought it but lost They came out not less sinful or more holy, but they came out more superstitious and more self-righteous and maybe even more full of anxiety in their conscience. Either way, it was a disaster. And so this teacher had a burden that he turned uh, towards the Bible, especially towards the teaching of Paul in Romans 8 and then in passages like the one we just read, to help his students learn how to face temptation. And he called his series of talks the Mortification of sin, which is the title of our sermon this morning. And the name of that teacher was John Owen. His book is still in print. It never has gone out of print since 1650. It's a pretty short little book written for teenagers, although you read it and you think, man, those teenagers were smart back then. They must have been. Of course, they were at Oxford, so I guess they were. But nevertheless, you read it today, and it is so relevant Not much has changed in human nature or in teenage nature or in adult nature since 1650. And so the big question this morning is how do we mortify our sins? Paul in verses 19 to 21, he's still talking about the work of the Holy Spirit. You might not know it though because he turns to talk about sin or about the flesh. And yet what he's doing is he's trying to get you to see this one point. This was the point John Owen wanted to make to his students. You cannot mortify your sin without the Holy Spirit. In fact, only by relying on the Holy Spirit can you fight against your sin and win. Here's how. In Romans 8, uh, for example, Paul says, If you uh, follow the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. And here he says, If... You are led by the Spirit. You will not practice the things that prevent you from inheriting eternal life. And so let's look together at three ways that the Holy Spirit helps us mortify sin. And by mortify, in case someone doesn't know what that word means, mortify means kill, put to death. How do we mortify sin? Three ways the Spirit helps us, if you'll look at your bulletin. First of all, He helps us know our enemy. Second, he helps us remember our inheritance. And finally, he helps us join the fight, which he is already doing. All right, so first of all, he helps us to know our enemy. Look at verse 19 again if you have your Bible open. Uh, Paul says something very critical. He says, the works of the flesh. So now he's talking about the works of the sinful nature. The works of the flesh are evident. What does evident mean? Uh, the, The NIV says it this way, the works of the flesh are obvious. I like that translation a little better. The King James says the works of the flesh are manifest. They all mean the same thing. They mean you can't hide them and you can't really mistake how bad they are. Once you see it, you know what it's all about. Now, the reason why he's saying that at this point is so important to understand He's already been talking about the flesh. In fact, he started talking about the flesh all the way up in verse 13. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But up until now, he's been talking about the flesh at the inside level, at the desire level. He said the desires of the flesh are against the desires of the spirit. The desires of the spirit against the desires of the flesh. Uh, Later in verse 24, he goes back to talking about the passions and desires of the flesh. He's talking about what goes on that you can't see. In your nature related to sin. That in our hearts we have a sin nature that has passions and it has desires which go against God. Now the thing about it is, at that level, it's not evident. At that level, it's not always obvious or manifest that it is sinful or what the true colors of the sin is. Right? Temptation comes with a sweet voice. Sinful passions in the heart seem so pleasurable and so promising. It promises us all kinds of benefits. In fact, sometimes the voice of temptation sounds an awful lot like my own voice. And sometimes, catch this, it can even sound like the voice of God. Does not the Bible say that the devil knows how to dress himself like an angel of light? What does that mean? Except that the devil is super subtle on the level of desires. He's able to convince you that the bad things are the good things and the destructive things are the building things. But Paul says, make no mistake about it, as deceptive as sin is in the heart, once it translates into action, it becomes deceptive no longer. You see it for what it is, or at least you should. It should be obvious. I mean, just look at the list that he gives there in verses 19 through 21. This is a list of basically all the ways to wreck your life. Is it not? Uh, The way that I look at it, there are four categories here, just to kind of give you a clearer understanding of the list. The first category is sexual deviancy or sexual sin sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. The Bible calls deviant all sexual practices that are not uh, between one man and one woman committed to each other for life, marriage. Everything else, according to the Bible, is deviant. Everything else, according to the Bible, is destructive to the human person and destructive to human society and dishonoring to the God who invented marriage. And so Paul says here, when you see sexual sin play out, it may seem very appealing in your heart at the level of your passions, but when you actually begin to act out your sexual temptations, it becomes very evident how destructive it is. Second category is spiritual adultery. So you can commit adultery against your spouse, but you can commit adultery against your God. He gives two, idolatry and sorcery. You can worship other gods, whether made by the hands in statue form or whether just invented in the head. You worship created things. Sorcery is where you try to manipulate through magic the forces of nature and the spirit world to get what you want. This is false religion. This is trying to replace God with something else, which is spiritual adultery. It's dishonoring to God and destructive to people. And then there's that long list, starting with enmity and ending with envy, which is all about interpersonal relationships and what a list it is. I mean, all of us get caught by this list. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. We can can fall out with one another in a million ways. And all the reasons why we fall out with one another tend to have to do with sin, which is putting myself before you, putting myself first and failing to put God first of all. Well, he rounds out the list with a fourth category, which I would call either abuse of created things or maybe even just substance abuse, drunkenness, orgies. Now, when you hear the word orgy, I actually don't like that it translates it that way. And the NIV says it differently uh, because it's not meaning orgy in the sense that you think when I say orgy. Uh, In Greek, the word orgy means a wild party, and that's the way, in fact, that the NIV translates it, wild parties. This is places where people are overeating, overdrinking, and yes, who knows what happens when that occurs. However, the idea here is you're abusing created things. God made drink, God made food for the nourishment of man's body, for the joy of their heart, but when we overindulge in either of them, it can become destructive, So again, this is a list that ought to be as obvious as the nose on your face what sin is up to. Sin wants to kill you. Sin wants to destroy you. The Holy Spirit reminds us of this because when sin comes calling in the heart, it almost never seems that way. And if you don't know what enemy you're facing, you're not going to want to kill it. Why was it that World War II was the most well-received and popular war for America to enter into of all the wars they've ever entered into. Why did more people support that war in America than any other that we've ever had? Because we had gathered enough information to know how evil the enemy was. We had discovered a little bit of what Nazi Germany was about, a little bit of what Japan was about. We discovered it personally at Pearl Harbor, and we knew the enemy is not for negotiating with. The enemy is for fighting. And that's the ministry of the Spirit here. That's what Paul is is trying to get uh, these believers in Galatia to understand. Sin, subtle though it is at the desire and passion level, is patently obvious in its destructive aims when you start actually walking it out. All of us know this. All of us should know this. Now, we may in our society and culture think, okay, I'm looking at this list, Stan, and there's a few of these that I feel like are just old-fashioned. After all, are you really trying to tell me in 2023 that it's still true that sex is only for marriage, for life, for real? It's 2023. Why, yes. And actually... Here is a critical thing for you to think about if you think that. When Paul first wrote this, was he writing to a sexually pure culture? If you I mean, if you know anything about Rome or Greece or the Greco-Roman world and empire of the day you know this this is why one scholar says it he studied this history he says look the greco-roman world during the new testament was known for its considerable openness in sexual matters very very permissive and, and permissive even in ways that today we would think no way they were permissive and yet when the new testament writers Talk about sex. They don't say, hey, you know, I know this is unpopular, so don't worry about it. No, they still continue to come with the light. And they continue to insist, no, God knows better than you. That actually what you think is good is destroying you. And it's destroying the world. And it will continue to destroy you until you bring it to God and have him heal it. To have him put you back together again. And I'll say to you, that's exactly what this message should do to us today. It's no new thing. We shouldn't flatter ourselves to think we're progressive in these things. It's not progressive to go back to something that was a common belief in the first century. Right? That's regression. That's going back behind the benefits of Christianity and the benefits of the scriptures. And what the scriptures would tell us today are the same thing that Paul stood up to say in Galatia. A place where he probably would have been hated for saying it back then. That God has a design for sex. And by the way, he has a dime for everything else in your life. And his design matters more. (laughs) Anything that deviates from his design, even if it feels good, even if it seems good in the eyes of men and women, is nevertheless a mortal enemy that intends nothing more than your destruction. Nazi Germany is not to be negotiated with. Neither is sin. Or to give another analogy, in Florida we know why the signs by the lake is there, do not feed the alligators. Right? We know why those are there. We have them there, not because we don't know, but because visitors don't know. Why don't you feed the alligators? They will eat you. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Alligators cannot be domesticated. They are wild creatures that love to eat meat. You are meat. (laughs) Your dog is meat. All those things are meat. And so you don't feed them and try to domesticate them because then you're just giving them more reason to eat you or or to harm you. Paul is saying something similar. A sign is being put in the ground at this point. Do not feed the gators. When you find sin in your heart, which, by the way, you will, even as a Christian, you've got sin in your heart, and I've got sin in mine, at the passion level, at the desire level, and yes, we have sinful actions in our lives. But when we do, we must not make peace with it. It is an enemy. We must fight it. We must join the Holy Spirit in trying to kill it, not letting it go. Make sense? That's the first thing the Holy Spirit does. He helps us know our enemy. One last thing on that before I move on, and I just want to—I'll say it real quick. Make sure that when you're reading that list there in verses 19 to 21, that you're not defining each of those terms in a way that excludes you. I just want to say that, um, you know, for example, fits of anger. If you hear fits of anger, you think, "Oh man, I know that guy." Right, and you think it's it's the guy who is like got road rage and pulls over on the side of the road and gets out of the car and puts up the universal signs of love and starts you know yelling and all that. That guy has got fits of anger, but I don't. Listen, we all got different ways of pitching a fit. Uh, don't in any of not just that one, but in any of these, don't write them in such a way that it only picks on the way other people sin without thinking about the way you do or the way that I do, right? That's the last thing I want to say about that. All right, secondly, uh, the Holy Spirit helps us to remember our inheritance. Uh, If you were going to get boxing or fighting lessons to learn how to box, what do you think the first thing is they're going to teach you? Block, Yep, block's important, right? Uh, Very important, but I think there's... There's probably something they're going to teach you even before that. And it has to do... It's the same thing they teach you first when you learn how to swing a baseball bat or a golf club or even throw a baseball. Your stance. Your stance. And and, and it's very counterintuitive. Nobody, Almost nobody guessed it in first service or this service because it's like the opposite thing. I mean, Amy did in both services, but... Uh, no, almost no one else said it because it's the last thing that you would think of. Uh, after all, in boxing, I'm not going to kick him. I'm only going to punch. So what does it matter what I do with my feet? And yet they're going to be constantly yelling at you, look at your feet. Look at your footwork. The reason is you can't, you can't land a punch or block a punch without the right foundation, without the right you know, distribution of weight on each foot. In fact, it's the distribution of your weight and the transfer of your weight actually at your lower body that makes your punch strong enough. It's amazing. Same thing with hitting the baseball and all the rest. Paul, in verse 21b, the second part of verse 21, helps us get a grip on our stance as Christians. Because if we're going to fight sin by the power of the Spirit, that's the first thing we have to pay attention to. He gives two words to describe how important it is Uh, there in verse 21. He says, I warn you as I warned you before. In other words, I'm warning you about something I've already been warning you about. This is a big deal. Warning, warning, warning. Footwork, footwork, footwork. Pay attention to your stance. Those who do such things, the things in the list, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now check your footwork. And somebody says, well, wait a minute. He just knocked my feet out from under me. By saying that no one who does these things enters the kingdom of heaven, doesn't that that condemn us? Isn't that a word of bad news rather than good news? Oh, no. And let me prove it to you. Uh, Turn back to chapter 4 of Galatians again. We, We visited this verse last week. We'll visit it again to point out one more thing in it. Galatians 4, verses 4 to 6. This is how God saves us. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he can redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive what? Adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Father. That's what we talked about last week. Verse 7. So you are now no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now, what is an heir? An heir receives the inheritance. An heir inherits. That's what an heir is. You can't be an heir who doesn't inherit Paul has already been, in other words, Paul has already been making the argument to all Christians. Every person who puts their faith in Jesus for their salvation becomes, at that moment, an heir of all the blessings God intends to give his children. An heir of it all. And and the Bible says he actually gives us the Holy Spirit so that we will not fail to receive our full inheritance in the end. He will ensure that in the end we receive the full inheritance that he, had, that he promises. Now in light of that, which is the whole argument of the whole book of Galatians, which is why I pointed it out to you, it can't be in verse 21 of chapter 5 that Paul is trying to get Christians to doubt whether they're going to make it to heaven or not. Now, I grant you, if there are people in the room back then and today who aren't yet Christians, who haven't yet trusted Jesus for their salvation, he is trying to get you to question. Because you are a person who continues to practice the things listed in that list, and you will never be able to get out from under that practice unless Jesus sets you free. He wants you to know that. But for Christians who have trusted Jesus, he's not saying, if you have ever done any of those things ever before or if you sometimes now want to do those things, or if you fall into those things, that you're not going to go to heaven. Instead, he's saying, if you practice them as a slave to them, you are not a child of God, and therefore you're not an heir. But I've just told you, by faith, you're a child of God. You are an heir. Here's the stance I want you to take. I want you to fight against your sin from the position of acceptance with God already. From the position of the power of God that he's already given to you to ensure your victory. I don't want you to go into it doubting. I don't want you to go into it thinking that you're odd and weird and not really a a Christian or a strong Christian because you're going through it. I want you to have confidence. This is important. I don't know about you, but when I face temptation... When I feel my sinful desires rising up and I commit sin, I tend to do the opposite. I lose my stance. I start doing this number. If I were really a Christian, I wouldn't have that temptation. If I were really a Christian, I wouldn't want to do that again. If I were a Christian, I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have said that. I'm never going to change. You ever talk like that to yourself? You know what you're doing when you do that? You are entering into a debate with the Holy Spirit. What do you think your odds are in that debate? Not so hot. You cannot debate the Holy Spirit and win. But what it will do is it will throw off your stance tremendously. And the more you beat yourself up and refuse to listen to the Holy Spirit in moments of temptation and moments of sin, the, actually the less effective you will be at resisting it. It's one of the devil's greatest schemes. Uh, if he can get us to doubt our position in Christ... He can get us to do a whole lot of other things that we wouldn't do if we were more sure of what God has given us through His Son and through His Holy Spirit. And so what we got to learn how to do, what the Holy Spirit's helping us learn how to do is to remember our inheritance, to get our stance set so that when that temptation comes, and it will, and when that sin rises up, it will, and when you mess up and commit a sin, which you will, you are ready. To fight it not on its own terms, but on Jesus' terms. According to Jesus' resources, and not according to your own. That was the thing that bothered John Owen so bad. Because there were some students in his class at Oxford who did really want to avoid sin, and they were trying really hard, but they were trying by their own resources, and and they were beating themselves up constantly because of their failures. And it was becoming this endless cycle, and he couldn't stand to watch it because It would leave the student either very superstitious, like almost can't step on a crack or I'll offend God, you know, so superstitious. Or it would make them very self-righteous. Look at what I've done, how strong I am at, at avoiding temptation, and I'm not like those other people. Or it would make them extremely anxious in their conscience. They could never get settled before God. And John Owen said, look, you're doing it all wrong. Your stance is in the wrong place. You cannot fight sin from this position. You can only fight sin from a confident position in where you are in Christ. I wonder this morning, if you're a Christian, have you experienced the Spirit's ministry of reminder in this way? There's nothing sweeter in my life than this the moments when I feel most under attack or most compromised or most sorrowful because of some way that I've acted, it's in those moments that I felt that Abba, ah, Father, come out most beautifully. It's in those moments that the sweetness of the gospel hits my taste buds in a whole new way. Have you experienced that? I hope that you haven't so argued with the Holy Spirit for so long in your life that you've quit experiencing that. And I would encourage you, highly encourage you to stop trying to debate him and start trying to listen to his reminder of who you are. You are not alone. You are loved and accepted by God in Christ. You share in Jesus' resurrection power You will one day inherit that the lies of sin are actually lies, whether they sound like it or not, but that God has given you the truth to conquer the lies and to conquer the error. Remember your inheritance, stand ready, know your enemy, which leads to our final thing this morning, join the fight. The Holy Spirit wants us to join His fight against our sin. He's already fighting. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the Spirit's desires are against the flesh. These are opposed. The Spirit comes into our hearts and He picks a fight. He is already battling our sinful nature, but we need to join Him. From that stance, we need to join Him and start dealing some blows. When temptation comes, you can punch back Let's talk about how to do that. Now, I heard a story once that illustrates, I think, the reason why we need to join. Uh, An old preacher friend of mine, he's a retired minister now, he's actually in his 90s, uh, talks about how once he was invited over to a parishioner's farm, and his parishioner on the farm had a mill, you know, an old mill that ground up grain. And it was a really old school mill, it was one where they had to attach a horse to a to a rope around a pole, and he would just—the horse would walk around and around the pole all day long, and it would cause the wheels to turn, which made the mill to grind. It's really old school. Well, this guy had had uh, begun to retire some of his old horses, and when he retired the old mill horses, he'd put them out to pasture, and they could live out the rest of their days, you know, eating the grass and just having a good time, not having to walk around and around in a circle. But the preacher says when he went and visited, he noticed that whenever uh, the man would open up the gates and let the horses out that had been retired, they would immediately go straight to the next, the first tree they saw and immediately start walking around and around the tree. And they would do that all day unless somebody came over and tried to keep continually redirect them. Now think about why, why is that true? Why would a horse do that? And I know we're not horses, but there's some similarities here. Why would a horse do that? Ingrained. Habit ingrained. Old habits die hard, right? I mean, you have a certain way you do things, and it's really hard to stop doing it, especially if you've been doing it for a long time. Now, we're not horses, but we are, at a very similar level, creatures of habit. Are we not? It's more complex with us, I get it, more complex than a horse. But nevertheless, isn't it true that given half the chance, even when we're set free, we'll go back to an old slavery that we don't have to go back to, but we do it because it's what we know how to do. This is why you have to join the Holy Spirit in the fight. And this is also what the horse didn't have. The horse doesn't have the Holy Spirit to help him not circle the, the tree. A Christian has been given the Holy Spirit to set him or her free from whatever tree they've been circling. That if you join him in trying to put sin to death each time it rises up, what you'll do is you'll eventually begin to make new habits in place of your old, weakening the old habits and strengthening the new that he is planting within you. We're going to begin next week to talk about the planting of the Spirit, the fruit that He puts into our lives. Those are the new habits that He helps train us in. But He's also there to help us kill and take stabs at those old things, those old things that rise up in our hearts, so that more and more over time they are weakened and drained of their power. This is what John Owen meant by the mortification of sin. If by the Spirit you mortify or kill the deeds of the body, you will live. Paul here in uh, verse 21 says, Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the key to understanding Paul's meaning is the word do. You'll notice in your Bible, probably, there's a footnote by the word do. What does the footnote say? Mine says, make a practice of doing. That's the ESV's footnote. Make a practice of doing. The reason why it says that is because the word do there is a present, ongoing, tense verb. Those who are doing such things, those who are continuing to do such things without being set free. Those who make a practice, have a certain way of life that is characterized and dominated by sin. Those people actually aren't Christians, Paul says. They have not yet been set free. Christians, while they may momentarily do or want to do any number of these things, and may even fall grievously into one or two of them, nevertheless, because of the spirit within them, cannot and will not make them a steady practice without his resistance. They will have his resistance, and they will, somehow, he's going to work us to a place where we come to repentance. And we come to once again lay it at his feet. The way to join him in his fight is to hit it before it gets too far down the line. Let me give you an example. And I'll go back to our example of fits of Anger, okay? That's the one we used earlier, the one we all think we're not guilty of, but probably we all are. Think about how you pitch a fit. I don't know how that is, but when that starts to happen, here's a way you can mortify that sin. All right? First, you feel it rising up, you need to stop. And you need to do the following things. First, invite the cross into the conversation. Invite the cross into the conversation. Here's what it sounds like. Oh Lord Jesus, I am very angry at this person right now. Lord Jesus, I wanna pitch a fit in my way of pitching a fit. I realize when I'm angry, it's almost never pure. Some, I may be justified in part of it, but I know there's probably part of it I'm not justified. And I know the way I wanna act it out is not very just or good. It's gonna make me look foolish. I'm gonna regret it immediately. It's not good. I know this, at the cross, there was a perfect wrath, a perfect anger that was not sinful at all, never was because it was your anger. And yet, instead of passing on that anger to me, which I deserved, you took it for me so that I didn't have to live under God's anger. I do not live under God's anger, which I deserved. Now, how is it that I can now contemplate giving my ill-conceived and mixed anger in a mixed way to this person who doesn't deserve it? Bring the cross in. Now you say, that's a whole lot. Yeah, it is. It takes a little bit of time to learn how to do this. But this is a very important practice right at that moment. As soon as you feel the passion rising, well then, don't just bring the cross. Bring the resurrection into it. Jesus, you were raised from the dead. That meant you satisfied God's anger forever. You you were vindicated. And I was vindicated with you. You were raised, it says, so that I could be raised with you. That means I do not have to live the same pattern of life that I've always lived. I can change. I don't have to give in to this passion at this moment. It's not because of my strength, because, Lord, you know my strength is little. But it's because of the power of your resurrection. If a dead man can rise from the dead, I cannot cuss this person out. Help me. And then at the end of it all, if I still feel like doing it, I just start praying, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. Oh, Father, I don't know why I'm ashamed of how I feel. I'm ashamed of what I'm doing. Help me. And the Bible says even in our weakness, even when we can only get out groanless or wordless groans in prayer, wordless groans, the Holy Spirit is there to pray with us and to help us in our weakness. Let me tell you, That's the advice, by the way, that John Owen gave to his teenage students in Oxford. And let me tell you, it works. It's biblical. Uh, It it does not produce self-righteousness because there ain't nothing I'm doing. All I'm doing is helplessly throwing myself on Jesus every single time. It doesn't produce anxiety because I know Jesus is already there. He's not left me. He's not abandoned me in my moment of need. He's near to me. It doesn't produce superstition because I'm not trying to invent all these ways of whipping myself and, you know, beating myself into submission. Instead, what I'm doing is I'm just relying on the work of God for me in Jesus, trying to obey his word. It's simple, not superstitious. It's all out in the open. Let me tell you, over time, I'm not saying the first time you do that during a fit of anger, your anger will be cured. But over years, I guarantee you, by the Holy Spirit's help, you will find... Yourself less angry than when you started the practice. You will find your passion for anger significantly weakened over time. Instead of debating the Holy Spirit, you're going to spend time debating sin with the Holy Spirit, right? Which is going to have far greater effects in your life. Um, After all, sin can only take so much of the Holy Spirit's voice and it just starts to give up. I don't want to hear more of it. And so after a while of bringing the cross and the resurrection and the Spirit into the conversation, that temptation is going to come back probably, but it's going to come back in a far weaker form. Now here's the thing. As soon as you get anger weakened over about 20 years, then you'll discover another sin that you need to start on. Then you'll get that one and then you'll discover another one and another... This never ends. Brothers and sisters, there's a reason why when someone becomes a Christian, God chooses not to make them perfect right then. There's a reason why no one attains perfection in this life. Why is that, do you think? Sweet dependence. Learning how to depend. Learning how to give the glory to God and not to yourself. Learning how to call on him as a father who wants to answer his children. Learning how to love. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, one by one you will live. Not by might. Not by power. But by my Spirit, says the Lord. Amen.